The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. She is perhaps the most elusive and the most direct poet who ever lived, a contradiction that echoes the great themes of her poetry, love, desire, longing, and loss. In ancient times, she was considered Homer's equal, and she was so revered that Plato called her the Tenth Muse, lifting her above her fellow poets and placing her instead among the goddesses who inspired literature, science, and the arts. Her name was Sappho, and she is the first major female writer in our history of literature. Only a small portion of her writing survives, but what we do have is tantalizing. What do we know of Sappho? How can we measure her artistic and cultural influence And how well do these fragments of love poetry hold up for a reader today? I'm Jack Wilson. We'll take a look at all these questions on this episode of The History of Literature. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Episode 4, Sappho. Last time we looked at Homer and the impact he had on ancient Greece. Let's leave that behind for a moment. Instead, let's race forward in time. Let's go to Paris in 1922. A young woman, newly married, living in bohemian squalor, sits in her apartment. She receives a message. Her husband, a struggling 23-year-old journalist, has been writing on the side, moonlighting, He's young, a nobody, but he believes in himself, and she believes in him. Now, someone has expressed some interest in his poems and stories. This could be the break they've been waiting for. She fills a suitcase with the papers from his desk and makes her way to the train station, excited to see her husband. Many of you know what happens next. At the station, she sets down the suitcase and goes to buy a bottle of water. The suitcase is stolen. Inside the suitcase, all of the stories of the journalist, everything he's written, are gone. In the end, only two of the stories, which had already been sent to publishers, are ever recovered. Months of agonizing work, all the originals and all the copies disappear. An entire set of stories by a young man writing in his prime is lost forever. That man, Ernest Hemingway. 
The story of Hemingway's suitcase has been told many times. It stands for something larger in our imagination, it seems. Maybe the capricious nature of art, the knife edge between well-known masterpiece and complete obscurity, or the intrigue of stories, valuable stories that might still be out there, worth millions, hidden in some Parisian attic, waiting to be discovered. Or the impact that stories from an original like Hemingway might have had on the history of literature had they been published instead of lost. But something about this story always bothered me. Yes, the stories were lost, but why does that matter? Why should we assume the importance of those stories? Or why should they be considered more important to us than all of the infinite other stories that never survived? Our universe is what it is. Why shouldn't we live within that one and celebrate it and study it and focus on it instead of lamenting the universe that never came to be? I know the counter-argument. Hemingway was a great artist, and for all my problems with him, I agree, I recognize his power and influence. If his existing works are important to us, his lost works might have been too. Probably would have been. It's likely, or it's highly likely, somewhere on that scale. But we have to have some way of dealing with absence, with what isn't known, what doesn't exist. An unknown author could write a novel today, burn it in a fire, and no one would care other than a few friends and loved ones, and probably not even them. And yet that might be a work as great as any that we currently see. Maybe that's too speculative. Maybe that's not enough to trigger our regret. What about works authors decided never to publish? Saul Bellow discarded drafts of novels that his biographers claimed were better than 99% of the novels that are published today. Ralph Ellison lost his follow-up to The Invisible Man in a Fire, a great tragedy for literature. He had read passages to literary friends and acquaintances who attested to its brilliance. Ellison lost years of effort up in smoke and years more trying unsuccessfully to recreate his earlier work. What if we look at categories? Women not encouraged or permitted to write, societies repressed by censors, If we regret Hemingway's lost stories, shouldn't we lament those lost works as well? The poetry and fiction and novels and plays that never came into being? Are Hemingway's stories in a different category? Every author who has ever lived either has died or will die before we get one more book from him or her. Maybe that's a loss too. How do we feel about this? What does it mean for the history of literature that we have so much absence? And why am I starting with this? Why is this relevant to Sappho? It's because for all that we can say about Sappho, she was the first great female author that we know of. Her poems have influenced artists and readers for more than 2,500 years. She's right there with Homer, her near contemporary, in both fame and glory. And yet, some estimate that we have less than 3% of her works. Some scholars put the estimate at less than 1%. Less than 1% of the total writings of one of the most famous poets who ever lived. I'll go even further. These poems were written as songs. None of the music survives. Imagine if Paul McCartney's reputation rested on lyrics alone. Imagine songs like Yesterday, Blackbird, Hey Jude. Imagine those as merely lyrics on the page without the songs. The lyrics are not bad. They hold their own as poetry. But to 
Does anyone think they have even one-tenth of the power without those melodies? Imagine yourself living 500 years from now. Imagine you have two lines of Hey Jude, lyrics only, no melody or way of recreating the melody. And maybe you have the words from a few other songs as well. Half the words from All You Need Is Love, a full set of lyrics of I Feel Fine, a ten-word phrase from Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. You're told that these Beatles were excellent, that they were the most popular group of their time. You'd be fascinated, right? You'd look at what the contemporaries said about them. You'd read about the screaming crowds and the dominance of the charts and the many, many musicians who came afterwards and cited them as their first influence or their most important influence or the greatest group who ever lived. You'd have no doubt of their importance. But could you ever really know or experience their genius? There's no music, no way of hearing it, just scraps of words and the opinions of others, of historical figures you respect, descriptions of the depth of feeling that these works provoked in their contemporaries. Now we're getting close to Sappho. This is the difference. This is why we don't lament the lost works of the unknown artist or even the censored writer. We have enough of Sappho to know that her genius was real, her genius existed, and that it manifested itself in songs. That these songs were so powerful they stood out. Nobody in ancient Greece was looking to be overwhelmed by a poet, a female poet from a remote island, writing not about wars or history or epic heroes, the range of topics we've seen, from Gilgamesh and the Hebrew Bible and, of course, Homer. And yet, they all were. They were bowled over by the beauty of her songs. It's a beauty that we can see only through their eyes and ears and the words they left behind. Hers is a light we cannot truly see except in reflection. Let's talk about what we do know. Sappho, we know, lived on the island of Lesbos, and of course it is Sappho's writings, the expressions of female desire for other females, that has given us our word lesbian. Virtually every ancient Greek poet and historian praised her as the greatest of all lyric poets. For centuries, her body of work was intact and full, nine volumes at ancient libraries, including the famous Library of Alexandria. Today, only one and arguably two of these poems remains in its entirety. The rest are in various stages of oblivion. We have hundreds of fragments, some nearly complete, others no more than a scrap, with a half a line or a handful of words dotting a page. Some of the fragments survive only in the works of others, as an author writing about grammar or vocabulary, for example, might cite a line from Sappho as an example. A shard of pottery with a partial inscription, an ancient Egyptian garbage dump, even, incredibly, a fragment of a Sappho poem written on the wrappings of a mummy. These are the scraps we're forced to pull together today. In spite of this lack of knowledge, we have enough to understand what made Sappho great. We can tell from the fragments and the testimony of others that she wrote with a clarity of image and a sparseness of language. Some have drawn the comparison between her works and the image-centered poetry of ancient China. Ezra Pound, not surprisingly, was a fan of Sappho and wrote his own homage during his imagist phase. Remember our Beatles comparison? 
If you had the handful of words from She's Living Home and A Day in the Life and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, you'd get some way toward understanding a lot about what they were up to, how it worked, and why their words mattered. If I gave you fragments from the lyrics of 100 or so songs of John Lennon, whether it's Imagine or Strawberry Fields or I Want to Hold Your Hand or All You Need Is Love or Across the Universe or Working Class Hero, if I let you in on the mind of that many sets of lyrics, even if they were only partial, you'd get some idea of what the artist conveyed to the world. With Sappho, we see something similar. A world comes into view through these fragments, and it's a very different one from what we've seen in Gilgamesh or Homer. Homer had his epic battles, the agony and wrath of Achilles, the heroic journey of Odysseus, sweeping panoramas that ranged across years and decades, covering history itself. Sappho's scope is different. Sappho is precise and surgical and takes as her world the affairs of the human heart. Sappho nails down the feelings and emotions that humans, especially lovers, experience and feel compelled to express. Sappho herself comments on this distinction between her own works and epic poems. This is from the Anne Carson translation. Some men say an army of horse, and some men say an army on foot, and some men say an army of ships is the most beautiful thing on the black earth. But I say it is what you love. The poem then introduces Helen sailing to Troy. It disappears into fragmentary lines before returning into focus with this. I would rather see her lovely step and the motion of light on her face than chariots of Lydians, or ranks of foot soldiers in arms. There we go. A comment on the works of others, a defense of one's own subject matter. It's the first such comment that we've looked at in our history of literature, but it co of course it won't be the last. Whether we call this the anxiety of influence, or whether we view it more simply as the competitive nature of the artist, or perhaps the self-protection that comes from a defense of one's artistic choices, or, as in this case, the almost playful nod to rejecting the alternative in favor of what strikes the artist as a better subject for poetry, perhaps answering real or anticipated criticism. However we interpret the commentary, it's a feature we will see again and again in literature. How many rock and roll songs are about rock and roll itself? Artists who pick up the guitar or the pen, or the movie camera, or the paintbrush, can't help but measure themselves against their predecessors and fellow artists. It's important to them personally, for their own purposes, to measure themselves against their inspirations, just as it's important for them to understand and to mold the expectations and ultimately the experience of their audience. What empowered this woman, Sappho, to take on the mighty Homer in this way? Clearly, she knew of the epic form, and she knew it was revered. What led her, as a poet, to reject the epic in favor of her own chosen subject matter? Where did she get the confidence and the presence to do so? It's easy to think of Sappho, a female in a man's world, a poet whose works have been mostly lost, and a lesbian writing before, say, 1985, as a quiet, secluded genius, recording taboo thoughts under a pen name, fearing the consequences of public exposure. But that wasn't the world of Sappho at all. 
Lesbos, in Sappho's time, was a brilliant cultural center with a strong commitment to poetry. Unlike other parts of Greece, women were highly educated and mixed freely with men, and they had clubs for the cultivation of poetry and music. Sappho wrote her poetry and songs first for her circle of friends, most but not all of whom were women. The greatness of Sappho's lyrics was recognized in her own time. When the news got out that she was on her way to Sicily for a visit, the city of Syracuse built a statue of her to greet her. Sappho was born into a well-to-do family. Her father was a successful wine merchant, and her brothers held prestigious positions. And finally, we know that Sappho was married, but her preference for female lovers was not viewed as secret or taboo. It was not until the 19th century in which Victorians tried to sanitize the nature of Sappho's sexuality, where we get the disguise that she was the headmistress of a girls' school. Ancient Greece was comfortable with Sappho's desire for women, comparing it with Socrates and his love for men. So that gives you some sense of where Sappho got the confidence to consider and reject Homer's subject matter. Not for her the beauty of an army and action, but the beauty of human love and emotion. She wasn't a mouse forced to live in an attic. She was a woman of the world, out there contributing, engaged, much more like female authors today, with their platform for their opinions, their book tours, their op-ed pieces, their speeches, their voice. Much more like that than what we see afforded to a female author like, say, Emily Dickinson. Sappho, from all we know, would have had the support network and prestige that would enable her to write about whatever the hell she wanted to. But more than that, I'm going to, I'm going to credit the compulsion of art. If you believe in your art, you seek to make it true and genuine. Sappho studied the human heart, the impact that love and desire had on her, because that was what she herself believed to be important. She didn't sit down with her lute and sing of armies and battles simply because that was what was done. What would be the point? She wrote about what mattered to her. It's a great example for us today. Now, a question remains. Why don't we have more of Sappho's poetry? There's nothing as dramatic in the story as Hemingway's suitcase. These weren't poems that were all in one place. They were widespread, all over Greece and then Rome and then Europe for more than a thousand years. What happened? There's a somewhat benign theory. Sappho's poems were simply lost due to the ravages of time. They gradually crumbled along with so many other rolls of papyrus in the Middle Ages. Some scholars argue that Sappho was the victim of historical circumstance, as her dialect, Aeolic Greek, was a difficult one, and more to the point, was not the version of Greek studied in academia. Homeric and Attic Greek were the languages that were being taught, which led to Homer, not Sappho, being more often copied and handed down and likely to survive. And there's a less benign theory. This one involves the church, the custodians of literature throughout the Middle Ages and Renaissance. Scholars have accused the church of being so scandalized by Sappho's strong emotions and descriptions of same-sex love that it burned the available remaining copies, obliterating whatever poems had survived to that point. In 1995, the British author Jeanette Winterson imagined Sappho sifting through the ashes of her burned poetry and demanding, What have you done with my poems? That's in all caps. 
It's a vivid and unforgettable image and phrase, and one suspects there is more than a bit of truth to the concept it expresses. The good news for literature is that during a period where literacy levels were low, the church oversaw the continuation of literature. The bad news is that the church oversaw the continuation of literature. I think there's room for both theories. Time has taken its toll on the works of the ancients, not just Sappho, but all the most respected lyric poets of her age. There were nine lyric poets, including Sappho, that were thought of as the canonical poets in ancient Greece, and the works of only two have survived largely intact. And those were by accident. That's all we have, at least until future discoveries are made. In any case, let's let our imaginations explore what's been lost, if for no other reason than that longing for what we don't have is always good for helping us appreciate what we do. And then let's also celebrate what has survived, not just the poems, but our awareness of Sappho as a historical figure. She is a great model as a pioneer, a female lesbian living during a culturally rich and fascinating period of male-driven culture, a lyric poet with a gift for melody and verse, who could channel that gift and marry it to the realm of sensation and sentiment, an artist whose genius overwhelmed and overpowered seemingly everyone who came into contact with it. A great success, a woman writer, very early in our history of literature. I'm glad she existed. I'm glad she was well known. I'm glad her imprint was there to influence other artists, directly and indirectly. And then, finally, let's celebrate the poems and fragments of poems that we do have. Here's fragment number one in Anne Carson's modern translation. Deathless Aphrodite of the spangled mind, child of Zeus who twists lures, I beg you do not break with hard pains. O lady, my heart but come here if ever before you caught my voice far off, and listening left your father's golden house and came, yoking your car, and fine birds brought you, quick sparrows over the black earth whipping their wings down the sky through midair, they arrived. But you, O blessed one, smiled in your deathless face and asked what now again I have suffered and why now again I am calling out and what I want to happen most of all in my crazy heart. Whom should I persuade now again to lead you back into her love? Who, O Sappho, is wronging you? For if she flees, soon she will pursue. If she refuses gifts, rather will she give them. If she does not love, soon she will love even unwilling. Come to me now, loose me from hard care and all my heart longs to accomplish, accomplish. You be my ally. And here is another famous one, fragment 31, describing the physical feeling of being in love. The translation, once again, is Anne Carson's. No speaking is left in me, no. Tongue breaks, and thin fire is racing under skin, and in eyes no sight and drumming fills ears, and cold sweat holds me, and shaking grips me all, greener than grass I am and dead, or almost I seem to me. There it is, a feeling so strong it makes the poet feel on the verge of collapse and death. And this reminds me of the impact that Sappho's poetry itself had on its listeners. There's a great story about Solon, 
the Athenian statesman and lawmaker, a sober, serious person who himself wrote poetry. As the story goes, Solon once overheard his nephew singing one of Sappho's songs. He asked his nephew to sing it again. Why? his nephew asked. So I can learn it and then die, Solon said. Literature has nothing else quite like Sappho in its history. Let's celebrate that truth, even as we lament it. That's it for this episode of the History of Literature. You can find us at jackwilson.com, that's J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com, and historyofliterature.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please rank us on iTunes or leave us a review. You can also like us on Facebook, that's facebook.com slash historyofliterature. Or you can let your friends know about us however you want. On every episode, there are links to post us to your Facebook page, send us around via Twitter, or share the good news in a number of different ways. Why not give your friends and loved ones the chance to hear more about Sappho? It will only take you a second. This is a holiday week, so we're on a slightly accelerated schedule. We'll be back on Wednesday with a special Thanksgiving edition of our sister show, The Restless Mind Show, which is right here on this podcast feed. If you subscribe to the History of Literature, you'll see those shows pop up as well, at least for now. For those of you who don't join us for those episodes, let me express my gratitude here. Thank you very much, everyone. Your words and support have been a great comfort to me and a source of inspiration and motivation. I truly appreciate all of your feedback, your warm wishes, and other signs of encouragement. I will give all the credit to the subject, the great books we are lucky enough to share. My thanks to them as well. Literature. Is it dying? Sometimes I think so. Sometimes I think so. But this week, let's celebrate its power to endure. It might be full of ashes, destroyed by time, but there's still a few shiny fragments for us to carefully pull together and enjoy. Sappho shows us the way. Even in the sick and feeble patient, there's a bright, beating heart. Thank you for listening, everyone, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm Jack Wilson. I'll be back next time for another episode of the History of Literature.